Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We have a congresswoman apparent for Northeast Ohio. The election came to a close and we'll be talking about who won on this week in this CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, who was up late, but not awfully late last night, waiting for the returns. Let's get right to it. Who won the Democratic primary for Congress in Cleveland Tuesday to replace Marsha Fudge? Seth Richardson, lay it on us. Yeah, Cuyahoga County Councilwoman Chantel Brown won the primary in, in kind of surprising fashion when you think about it. Going into yesterday, I, you know, I, I, I was talking with a lot of people and, you know, I kind of maintained throughout the day that, hey, I don't think anybody necessarily has a, a firm like data point grasp on anything that's going on, but there's certainly gut feelings and just things that the campaigns are doing that make it look a certain way. And I mean, she was able to beat uh, former state Senator Nina Turner by five percentage points, which is a pretty healthy margin, all things considered. Um, you know, even, you know, she even got up to 50%, which, uh, you know, I was really surprised at considering there were 13 candidates in this race, but uh, you know, she's going to go on now to, uh, you know, face, Republican Laverne Gore in the November general election. But for all intents and purposes, she's probably going to be the next congresswoman. Let's talk a little bit about about what we think happened here. And we're going to do an analysis later today. But, you know, I, I was talking to people in the Jewish community who were very alarmed by Nina Turner. I mean, almost to a level of panic. If she wins, it endangers the state of Israel. Nina Turner had said some intemperate things about Israel, and it really energized the, the the Jewish voters. And if you look at where the highest turnout was, it is in the suburbs that have a larger than not Jewish population. I got to tell you, I can't remember the last time the Jewish voting bloc would have determined an election if that's what this turns out to be. Yeah, I think it was clearly a driver, and it's you know, you know maybe part of the reason for that is because there was such low turnout, right? That uh, you know the, the the Jewish population very well may have voted kind of outsized to their normal influence in a typical election year. I I, I haven't looked totally at the numbers yet, but just looking at uh, the turnout in um you know from yesterday, I think that's something that is probably going to bear out at the very least. And, and you know, Chantel seemed to acknowledge that in her acceptance speech as well when she thank you know her uh you know jewish brothers and sisters is what she said um you know for helping her to victory and i you know i don't think it's any coincidence that you know the israel lobby comes in here and spends two million dollars on her behalf as well i think they clearly wanted to sort of energize you know the jewish vote on israel but but i mean i think even beyond that what i i think what's going to be a big factor here is you know Turner's kind of brand of politics is, you know, not necessarily conducive to this kind of district that, you know, has older voters, has, uh, you know, it's a majority minority population. And, you know, yeah, while, you know, Senator Turner is black, her, her, her brand of politics is kind of more popular among, you know, a lot of young white liberals who they're, they're just aren't 
that many here in Cleveland, at least yeah. not that many who voted. Yeah, a lot of people kept saying that she's too far left for Northeast Ohio. She doesn't represent Northeast Ohio. Uh, and she she also, I think, brought the ire of the Black Caucus because yeah. of some things she said. So she kind of put herself on the outside. She's got a lot of accomplishments, and she's been very much the pragmatist when she's been in yeah. the legislature. But, but it, what's interesting, too, is this really in the end, I don't think came down to an election about Chantel Brown. This was the anti Nina Turner vote. I mean, Chantel Brown got a lot of Republican money for, uh, yeah. you know, from people that were petrified of, of the Nina going in, joining the squad. And again, I think it was a, a lot of the, uh, the Jewish vote. The, the, the other factor here is we're about to redraw the districts. And so this might majority minority district might not exist anymore. And so Chantel Brown will have to run again in a primary next spring in a district that could look very different. Um, so I, I, unlike in, in previous elections where somebody comes through this brutal, uh, brutal election to replace the, the outgoing incumbent, the this one's not a lock. It's not like, OK, I won here. I've got this. I, I imagine, depending on how the seat is drawn, that we may see some some challenges, right? Yeah, I think it's certainly possible with her with her having a pretty healthy, uh, you know, relatively speaking. Right. We're talking about like 17 percent turnout. It wasn't, you know, gang but in Cuyahoga County, at least it wasn't exactly gangbusters or anything. But, you know, there there are certainly elements in Northeast Ohio that aren't particularly thrilled with, uh, you know, Chantel Brown, either through her work at the party or feeling that she was, you know, kind of anointed and, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of people, I don't want to say a lot of people, but there are definitely people who might feel kind of slighted, like, well, you know, what has she necessarily done that I haven't done? So I think you could see a, a concerted effort there. The, the issue becomes like a fundraising thing, though, at that point, right, where, you know, Brown is going to have the backing of obviously, you know, Washington establishment at this point for fundraising is probably going to see a boost because of that. And if you're mounting a, a primary challenge against her, you have to have some sort of funding. And it's just kind of hard to see where you turn to the funding. Like, how, although, how, do, you, how do you get that money? Although if the money that poured into this um, especially from from Jewish causes was really anti-Turner. That wouldn't be a factor in the primary in the spring unless Turner runs again. So so all of that support that she got that look, let's face it, early polls had her way down. So she overcame a huge deficit and the postcards we were all blitzed with. And I've never seen as many as I've gotten in this thing. And it was mostly outsiders coming in. If they're gone because the anti-Nina Turner faction's not there, I'm not sure she's as strong a fundraiser um, as you say. It, it, look, it's, it, she's, she's headed to Congress. She'll, she'll win handily in November. And so, so she'll have what? When's the primary next year, Jane Cohn? Is it in May or March? I believe it's um, May. May. So she'll have five months as an incumbent before there's six yeah. before she's got to go out and fight for it all again. And uh, we'll have to see how it goes. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
How much money do first energy ratepayers possibly have coming in refunds because the utility used that money for questionable payments to people like Cleveland businessman Tony George? Jane Coon, we did a big profile on Tony George some months ago because of how he figures into city politics with regard to first energy and Cleveland public power. Now we know he's made a boatload of money off of first energy, <laughs> which is going to raise all sorts of additional questions about was First Energy trying to unfairly torpedo Cleveland public power? Right. Well, um, you're right about all that. But to go to your question that you raised, um, I'm not sure that people have these refunds coming yet. It, it still has to go before an administrative law judge. But this audit commissioned by the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio in the wake of the House Bill 6 scandal uh, says that, that the ratepayers should get $6.6 .6 million. And most of that money... Um, were payments to Tony George. And uh, this money was part of a total of more than $24 million in payments that the audit said First Energy had flagged as improperly classified, misallocated, or lacking proper supporting documentation. So besides more than $10 million uh, to, to companies um, controlled by Tony George that were classified that way, there was $14 million to companies controlled by former PUCO chair Sam Randazzo and about another half million bucks to dark money groups controlled by um, now indicted former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder. So it gets a little confusing, but this audit, which was done by a third party auditor called Blue Ridge Consulting Services, only recommended that the 6.6 million um, that was mostly tied to Tony George be refunded because only that portion of the payments was paid for with money collected from ratepayers apparently through three different fees as well as part of the the base rate that was charged to customers. So that's why that is. But you you probably want to know as you brought up what First Energy paid to George's businesses over the years, right? I mean, this is yeah. as you said, this is the first time we've seen. A lot of detail on it. They include $2.6 million for Ohio outdoor advertising for billboards promoting energy efficiency, $2.2 million to a George company called Echo Earth Energy for pro-energy efficiency billboards, as well as consulting fees, and nearly $600,000 for a real estate lease for storage in Cleveland. Um, they, they paid George's businesses $35,000 a month in rent for a warehouse on Euclid Avenue, uh, $400,000 to be what's called an alternative energy consultant, and $47,000 to develop first energy credit and debit cards, according okay, so, to this report. So let's so, remind people, Tony George was before Cleveland City Council trying to get a contract with CPP that would have benefited first energy didn't get it and right. turned around almost immediately and launched a drive to reduce the number of people on council. Ended up right. blowing up in his face because as time went by, people <laughs> said, wait, we're trying to disenfranchise ourselves. He ran with his tail between his legs, pulled the effort and disappeared. But there was some thought by Kevin Kelly, the council president, that that was all done for First Energy so that First Energy could get some more competitive advantage over Cleveland Public Power. Now we know he got a lot of money. It yeah, just, that $400,000 consulting fee, they paid George that in 2016, the one to consult on alternative energy. And that was just months before 
that fight with city council over the utilities contract yeah, that you it, just mentioned. It looks bad. And of course he said, well, I haven't seen these documents, so I can't talk about it. It's like, give me a break. Yeah. You know exactly what's going on here. We should also point out he's been a big supporter for years for mayoral candidate Dennis Kucinich. And he's also donated to three of the other people running for city council. Uh, I believe this is going to trigger more of that investigation of what. Yeah. First Energy and I believe he's do. also a pretty big donor to Larry Householder as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of ugly. What um, yeah, the, the audit really, other than listing the amounts, it really didn't go into much about what this money was for. I it, mean, it listed the amounts it said what the businesses were, but it seemed like there was a, an absence of facts. Will there be, do you expect there will be more documentation about this or do you just think it'll go before the administrative hearing and that's where we might learn some additional information? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the reporters were pouring over some supporting documents here, so maybe there's there's more to come. I'm really not sure. I mean, this is just one of several investigations that the PUCO has going and, and other entities are also still investigating. So you never know uh, what could come out. Okay. This uh, is another blockbuster day on that front. We have more to talk about later in the podcast. It's this week in the CLE. What records does the FBI want from the Ohio Public Utilities Commission about Sam Randazzo, the guy Governor Mike DeWine named to lead the commission? Jane Cahoon, another big story yesterday. Sam Randazzo, the news just gets worse and worse. Yeah, Andrew Tobias got a hold of a couple of subpoenas as a result of a records request on, on Tuesday. Uh, they actually date back to April and May, but they do show that federal authorities sought Randazzo's appointment calendars and communications that he had with other government officials regarding House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout law that, of course, is at the center of the ongoing federal corruption probe. They also sought records on a bunch of other law changes and regulatory moves that helped First Energy and Energy Harbor. That's the former First Energy subsidiary that owns the two nuclear plants that HB6 was supposed to have subsidized. And uh, they also wanted records relating to, you know, Randazzo's companies and so forth. But one um, one topic that they that they sought records on was this PUCO case through which Randazzo in 2019 voted to cancel a planned 2024 review of First Energy's electricity rates. Um, they were worried about that, that it was going to hurt their their bottom line. The, this was all referenced in this deferred prosecution agreement that First Energy signed last month that allowed the company to escape being convicted of a crime. And, uh, you know, they 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 as I said, they worried about this this 2024 review. They called it the Ohio hole. And after Randazzo and other PUCO commissioners canceled that rate case, you know, we saw in this deferred prosecution agreement evidence that former CEO Chuck Jones texted Randazzo to thank him for that, including this image of the company's increased stock price. And um, so uh, anyway, and the uh, another topic they wanted to explore was the um, decoupling, you know, the, the thing that guaranteed first energy revenue at a certain certain level. Yeah, I mean, given what we've been reporting about him, the $22 million First Energy paid him over his career, the admission by First Energy a few weeks ago that they had paid him a bribe, I'm a little bit surprised that the FBI subpoenas came as late as they did. They came in, what was it, April and May or March and May? Yeah, April April and May, yeah. 
Yeah, I would have thought they would have submitted those last fall or yeah. whenever yeah. we learned about that $4.3 million, which is some time ago. But clearly the focus of that investigation has turned to him. And right. clearly it's vigorous. The, 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 we, we had worried a little bit that when the original U.S. attorney on this case had to leave because of the change in presidents, that this investigation would take a back burner. Obviously, that's not the case. It's on fire. Right. And I mean, Randazzo has not been charged with anything and he's denied, totally denied wrongdoing. But as you said, yeah, these subpoenas really show that they're they're targeting him. OK, well, we'll have to see when that comes. We're still waiting to see if the former CEO, Chuck Jones, gets charged. Of course, he came out recently and said nobody did anything wrong, even though his former employer has, <laughs> has admitted the whole scheme. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What Cleveland mayoral candidate is clearly not fulfilling his duties as a Cleveland City Council member? Seth Richardson, one might argue that if he's not doing his job as a council person, why would you expect him to do his job as mayor? I'm sure some will probably make that argument, including, uh, you know, some of his opponents. But, you know, uh, Bashir Jones is one of two uh, council members who missed 10 meetings, um, you know, 10 city council meetings through July, the other being Joe Jones. Now, Joe, all of Joe Jones were considered unexcused absences. And, you know, uh, Bashir Jones did have two excused absences, but it's it's quite a lot of time to miss, especially when you consider you're running in a mayoral race this year. It seems like something that you would want to make sure that you can get to and even a little more puzzling because these are remote meetings. It's not like you have to go anywhere. You, you know, can do them from your home. Uh, so I, I, I don't I don't know what's going on there. Uh, you know, Jones, but sure Jones didn't respond to a request for comment about you know, why he missed so much time, but it's certainly a little strange. It's interesting that, that we're looking at the absences from council meetings. I, I had remembered there was a period where Ken Johnson, the very recently deposed council member because of his federal crime conviction, was in hot water with his colleagues because he wasn't showing up and they had a vote to excuse him because he was he was risking uh, ouster. I was looking for that story. I couldn't find it, uh, but I did find in 1993 uh, then reporter Ben Marison, who is Attorney General Dave Yost's chief of staff these days, had done a big blowout about all the absences at city council. And I swear the quotes in it were almost identical to what people were saying this time. It is surprising that Bashir, who is in his first term as a council person with designs on being mayor, would blow off so many meetings. He has not been a force on this council. He has not been somebody that's been trying to help steer city policy. He His campaigning on his work that he says he's done in his ward. But but I, I just don't, I don't see how this can't hurt him not bothering to participate in the meetings that he's paid $88,000 a year to participate in. Well, and it's especially puzzling when you consider that in 2020 when you know, when 2020 happened and, you know, coronavirus happened, I, I think it, there's I don't want to say it's excusable or anything like that, but it certainly would make sense that, hey, maybe you miss some more meetings because you're really dealing with, um, you know, getting getting something done in the community. You don't have time for a meeting because you have to go figure something out. And, you know, you know, Jones only missed four of 25 meetings in 2020 and only two of them were unexcused and two were excused. So to see that number ramp up in 2021 and we're not even all the way through 2021 on top of that. And he's got more than, 
you know, double of uh, the missed meetings in a mayoral election year where you are running after everyone has kind of gotten used to doing the virtual thing. It's just it, it's very puzzling. Well, and look, the knock on him, I mean, there's several, but the knock on him is he's inexperienced. He's a first term council member. He hasn't had much from before. So so if you're trying to overcome that against somebody like a Kevin Kelly, who's been council president for eight years and been on council forever, or Dennis Kucinich, who's been in public life forever, or Sandra Williams or Zach Reed, you would think you'd want to be present. You'd want to be able to say, I did the work. I've learned everything I can about how this city operates by being an active council member, but he didn't even show up. So so how much learning has he done to, to be ready? I, I think the other candidates will make hay out of this, but he's made himself vulnerable by not bothering to do the work. Uh, it's kind of ugly. Joe Jones is up for reelection as a city council member uh, and as our editorial board uh, endorsement, not him, uh, said, all of the candidates in that say, we don't care who wins as long as it's not him because he's not doing any work. This would seem to bear that out as well. Missing 10 meetings without an excuse shows that Joe Jones isn't doing the work either. Well, and as you said, back to Bashir for just a second, you know, he he has made it very clear while he's on the campaign trail yeah, I've got some stuff to learn. Yeah, I've got some stuff to learn. And, you know, one of the things you have to know as mayor is how the intricacies of city council work because you have to exactly. work in concert with city council. You know, we don't, you know, a lot of people will point to the mayor or, you know, and it, it works that way anywhere, right, where you have people point to the governor, people point to the chief of the chief executive of whatever governing body. And, you know, that's the end all be all. But you look at a case of like, you know, even just like Mike DeWine at the state, right, where people look at that. Yeah, he has to understand the intricacies of the state house, just like the mayor of Cleveland has to understand the intricacies and, you know, some of the dealings of city council and not being there. I feel like, you know, especially right now, you kind of miss a lot of valuable experience there, really being able to figure it out and being able to tell voters, hey, you know, I know how this works and I, I – I right. can navigate through it, even though maybe maybe I don't know everything. But you know what? I have I have been here and I have figured this out and you can trust me when I'm going forward. It I, I, it's it's going to sell the voters. It's going to hurt them. Although I, I do take issue with one thing you said, Jane Coon, do you think anybody understands the intricacies of the state house? <laughs> <laughs> well, no comment. <laughs> no I don't, and you pay said. me to understand it. So, yeah. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Fresh off his role negotiating a bipartisan infrastructure bill, Ohio Senator Rob Portman released a study on cybersecurity Tuesday. Jane Cahoon, he is busy as he heads <laughs> off to oblivion. He announced in January he won't be seeking re-election, but he's been working hard. And what's the bad news that came from his study? Yeah, he's everywhere. Uh, the bad news is that Computer systems at seven federal agencies don't comply with basic cybersecurity standards that are needed to protect sensitive data. And they still have flaws that they've had for years, even though the, these agencies have been repeatedly told what they should do to improve this. The, this was a report that uh, Portman released with Gary Peters, a Democratic senator from Michigan. Um, anyway, the flaws described in this report, it's from the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. 
Uh, they include failures to adequately protect personally, personally identifiable information, to quickly install security patches, to maintain accurate and comprehensive IT asset inventories, to maintain current authorizations for information systems, and to retire legacy technology no longer supported by the a vendor. So Portman sounded the alarm on this and said, you know, it's clear that these cyber attacks are going to keep coming and it's unacceptable that our own federal agencies are not doing everything possible to safeguard our data. He said the report shows a sustained failure to address cybersecurity vulnerabilities and um, this failure leaves national security and sensitive personal information open to theft and damage by sophisticated hackers. So, um, yeah, it's, it's distressing that it's very given distressing. all of the attacks the government has had from Russia and elsewhere that that it's this bad. I mean, what they found was not minor flaws. They found that we're basically nakedly exposed to attacks and there's personal information in there that can can get picked up. I hope when Portman leaves Congress, somebody picks up his efforts to uh, keep this up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Ohio likely to get from the infrastructure bill that Senator Rob Portman helped negotiate? Jane Coon, we got a we we criticize uh, Rob Portman fairly frequently because we <laughs> felt he didn't do enough to rein in Donald Trump. He's a smart guy and he knows what's what, but he stood silently by a bunch of times. Well, you got to give him a tip of the hat. He helped rescue this infrastructure bill. He was one of the key Republicans that worked with the Democrats to get this done. He's always talked about he tries to be bipartisan and seek solutions for Ohioans. He really delivered here. And Biden, when he screwed up and and threw down and, and made an ultimatum to the Republicans and it was falling apart, Portman is the one Biden called and said, help me, what do I need to do to clean this up? <laughs> uh, and he helped them clean it up. So he told us yesterday what we might see in Ohio from this bill. What did he say? Yeah, if I could first add that, that Portman not only pushed for this, but in the face of Donald Trump trashing the whole deal and and trying to pressure Republicans not to support it. So he did stick his neck out here. But uh, Portman promises that this is going to bring Ohio big bucks for us to fix our, our crumbling roads and bridges, as well as our ports and airports. He, he estimated that roughly $11.5 billion of the bill's $110 billion for, for new spending for roads and bridges over the next five years would go to Ohio. He said um, Ohio has the second highest number of bridges of any state. That's 44,736. About half of those are in poor shape. And he said this legislation was going to provide $60 billion, including $45 billion in new grant funding for state and local governments to, to fund projects like the often talked about uh, Brent Spence Bridge Corridor in the Cincinnati area. And um, then it's got some stuff for commercial aviation, which he said provides 158,000 jobs in Ohio and contributes $13 billion to Ohio's economy. He said that's also going to benefit. It's The bill has $25 billion for airports around the country on top of more than $163 million they've already received in the uh, coronavirus relief legislation. And there's also money for to replace lead water service lines and um, and uh, upgrade sewer systems and, um, you know, to ensure clean and safe uh, drinking water. And um, that's particularly useful to cities like Ohio that have difficulty funding these kinds of improvements. And then there's Great Lakes uh, Restoration um, Initiative money. It's going to get a billion dollar infusion to 
for projects to abate pollution and keep invasive species out of the lake and address erosion and other problems. Yeah, it's a heck of a legacy for uh, for Portman. He 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 delivered in a big way on this, and and we all know how challenging it was to to get this to the point it's at. So way to go, Rob Portman. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Shorter podcast than normal. We lost Laura Johnson early on to technical difficulties. So we're going to end a little bit early. Thank you to everybody who sent in suggested name changes for the podcast. Read them all, and there's some good ideas there. We'll continue to mull that. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Seth. Thanks to the absent Laura. Thanks to everybody who listened to this podcast. Mm-hmm.